Uh, Well, friends, we continue to venture through the book of Daniel. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Daniel chapter 6. And as you do, and as we talk about Ukraine, there's been many visuals now that as we've walked through a book of the Bible that talks about Christians being exiles, right? That's what 1 Peter, that's the primary term Peter uses to refer to those in the New Testament church, of which we are a part of. And he calls them exiles. And as I watch the news, I begin to go, oh, there's a, there's a facet of, of maybe what Peter is talking about. And one such facet that uh, I paid attention to this week, there was a woman who was being interviewed on the news, and uh, what gripped my heart about her story uh, was the reality that a number of years ago when Russia first invaded uh, in, the, in the Donbass region, uh, that's where she lived and she had to leave, right? She became a refugee those years ago, and then here she was standing on the border of Poland, once again a refugee, uh, becoming an exile again, a second time from uh, her home country or home city. And it, and it really broke my heart. And in some ways, uh, it, it painted this picture to me of a reality in all of our lives to the extent that uh, as exiles, there are times where we may face, by God's grace, a moment of deliverance from something, but it doesn't guarantee us uh, that we will never face uh, a form of suffering like that again. Uh, In fact, uh, as exiles, we're reminded time and time again that even in those seasons of deliverance, that, that we're still not home that our hearts are still yearning for another place. And, and uh, those moments of deliverance are a gift, uh, but they're not things that are going to ultimately satisfy us on this side of glory. I think of friends who have gone, I just I need deliverance from this job, right? It's hard. It's, uh, there's, there's terrible things happening in this workplace. And, and if I just got out of this, it would be better. And, 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 and they do by God's grace. But then sometimes what you find, and all the time what you find, is what Genesis 3 says is still true that thorns and thistles will still fill the ground in whatever place that we work, and we're still not home. We have other pictures. Maybe it's a school. If I could just get out of this school and away from these kids who bully me and pick on me, uh, it'll all go away. It'll all be better. I'll finally be satisfied. And, and the reality is, is, is we're constantly finding ourselves in a place of needing deliverance. For some, maybe we've been delivered from illness. But you know what? These tents are still fading away, and we will face that ultimate enemy of death that Christ defeats on the cross. Even Friday, I preached a memorial service, and I preached the story of Lazarus and Jesus at at his tomb and raising him from the dead, and and it just struck me as I was preparing for that, Lazarus still didn't escape death. He's not walking among us today. He was raised from the dead, but he faced death. Sometimes I feel like, wow, that was unfortunate. He had to go through it twice, at least that earthly death, right? Right? Thankfully, we know his faith is now sight. But, but the reality is, is the life of an exile still remains a life of faith that must be lived till the very end. There's never a moment where the exile doesn't have to strain our eyes and ask the Lord to put in our hearts the hope we need to continue until we find our final home in him. And so this morning, follow along with me, Daniel 6, 1 to 3, and what we're doing is we're jumping into this moment uh, with Daniel, this exile that we've read about time and time again, and he finds himself in a completely new situation, but he also finds himself needing the eyes of faith to trust the Lord for his deliverance. So read with me verses 1 to 3. It says this, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, 
so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Pray with me as we get going here this morning. Lord, uh, we need your wisdom and your grace as we walk through a familiar story. Uh, Lord, I pray that, that you will draw out to our hearts that which is unfamiliar by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would continue to convince us that we're exiles. Lord, I know I'm not quite convinced of that. Uh, sometimes I really want this to be uh, the ultimate home and my ultimate hope because I can lay hands on it and it's tangible and I, even though it's a myth, feel like I can control it. But Lord, we can't. And Lord, help us to have eyes to see that our only true hope is the living God. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring that home in our hearts this morning through your word. And Lord, would you just guide uh, my words as well. We love you. Thank you for this time. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So here's what I mean by Daniel finds himself in a new situation. So remember at the outset of the story, Babylon had gone in and conquered Jerusalem. He had ripped people out of their homes and brought them back to Babylon, right? Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler at that time. And then you fast forwarded to last week. There was kind of this abrupt end to Nebuchadnezzar's reign and, and his son Belshazzar shows up and he's there for one whole chapter in the Bible. You have the writing on the wall and then all of a sudden his kingdom gets ripped from him, it says. And then in verse 6, we see a whole different regime. It's not even the same empire. It's Darius, uh, who Darius is a ruler uh, in the Medo-Persian or the Medes and the per, uh, Persians uh, empire. And, and so it's not even the same empire. And I wonder if Daniel is going, good, we're getting the Babylonians out of here, they're a hot mess, and now we're going to get these Medes and Persians in here, and maybe we'll catch a break, right? Maybe it'll be all better. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll catch a break. And in some ways, this ruler, Darius, and, and it refers to him as a king here, it's very likely he was an, uh, a king who was under a greater king. But in some ways, he might be going, oh, cool, like, I'm going up the ladder. There's 120 folks and three regional directors, and, and Darius wants to make him basically uh, ruler over all of these areas. But friends, this is one of the most familiar passages in all in this entire book. It's Daniel and the lion's den, right? So you know this thing's going to trend badly here after the third verse, right? He's going to quickly find that uh, there is no guarantee of absence of future crises, even if there are changes in his current circumstances. So here's the first thing we're going to read about. We're going to read about this exile, and we're going to read about his integrated life. And, and, and bear with me as I talk about this, but, but something that's really difficult as an exile is to live a life that's consistent with our faith. It's really easy for us to conform with what's going on around us because we're just tired of fighting against this feeling of being in exile. In many ways, we just kind of want to lean into it and belong, don't we? Let's read about the integrated life of this exile. Pick back up with me in... Oh, Tom, I did it again. I'm sorry. Uh, in verse 4. Here we go. Then the high officials and the, and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regards to the kingdom. But they could, not, or they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of God. Fascinating, right? Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. 
All the high officials of the kingdom and prefects and satraps and counselors and governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. All right, so, so isn't this fascinating? And we don't have a whole lot of detail. Actually, Daniel has one line in this whole passage. We don't know why these folks didn't like Daniel, but they just didn't like him. Was it jealousy? Was it because he's not uh, from their people? Uh, we just don't know, but, but they want to toast him, basically. They want him thrown in the lion's den. Now, here's the fascinating thing, and many people call this one of the early miracles of the Bible, verse 4. The high officials and the satraps sought to find a a ground for complaint, but they could find no ground. The reason I say it's one of the first miracles is, as one commentator said, it's a squeaky clean politician, right? Uh, It's hard. Sorry, that was a dirty joke. That's bad. I am just so sorry. Um, You can send your email. It's okay. Um, But they really couldn't find any ground for complaint. It, it, the idea here is this idea of above reproach. There was nothing for anyone to grab onto. They couldn't go back in his social media and find something. They weren't going back to his high school yearbook and finding things. They weren't hearing an interview and going, oh, let's smear this guy. They literally could find nothing. And he was a man of integrity. You know what integrity means? It's this idea of integrated, right? Daniel's faith in the living God was integrated into his life that he lived out before other people. That he was a man of the book. He followed God's law and he did it willingly. And it was a gift. What's even more fascinating is the only thing they could find wrong with him, verse 5, is they said, if we could find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of God. If we can find some aspect of his faith that pushes against our culture, that's what we can use to get him thrown to the lions. Similar to probably what we find in our culture here today as well, right? Culture disagrees with some aspect of God, and that's what they will often use to persecute God's people. Now, here's what's fascinating. Uh, Darius is also a man of the book. It's just a different book, right? He's like, if I sign it, it's the law of the Medes and the Persians. And just culturally, what's fascinating to me is sometimes we, we think, uh, you know, I don't want to live by God's law. I'm just going to be free. The reality is we're always living by the law of something, right? It's the law of something. It's the social group that we're a part of. It's the political party that we're a part of. Whatever it may be, we're living by a law to hit a standard so that we can belong, if you will. Well, let me unpack this a little bit. When you move forward to the epistles, the epistles in the New Testament are letters, right? And, and if you look at the general epistles, those are the letters written or not written by Paul, right? So Peter has one, James has one, the book of Revelation could be considered an epistle. As you read those, um, one of the terms that it says over and over again that, that is a theme, it says, do good, do good. I know sometimes we kind of bristle at that and we're like, oh, that doesn't sound very grace-oriented. It could become legalistic. But, but friends, we can't escape the reality that God's Word says after we place our faith in Him, our identity is secure, right? We can't earn that identity. 
right? The indicative comes first. What is true of us comes first is important. But there's always the imperative. What is true never changes and always comes before what to do, but we can't jettison that part of it, the imperative. God's Word constantly calls us as exiles to do good, and, and, and one of the main uh, places that we can see this is in the book of 1 Peter. We're going to go back and forth with that because that is the book of the Bible that talks the most uh, about the exile. Now again, Hebrews 11 says, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God, right? We can't live a good life before the eyes of God unless we have relied first on His work on our behalf. Philippians 2 says, it is his power that works in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So apart from his Holy Spirit, apart from his gospel, we should probably quit trying to do good. Now, I don't really mean that, but hopefully you understand what I'm getting after. We can't do good in order to please God. We understand that he is already pleased with us, and the fruit of our lives is these good works. But, but let me just share with you the grace that a life of integrity and living in line with God's word uh, gives us. And this is First Peter 2, 11 to 17. Here's the language of exiles. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's the first thing I'm going to talk about. Secondly, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the second thing I'm going to talk about. The third, well, we'll keep reading, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors or sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor just the people you like, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor if they're in your political party. Okay. Let me reread that last one. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. All right, so what's the grace we find in this? What is the grace that we experience if we are living an integrated life, saying what I believe is God and his word, and and having that work its way out in our lives? The first one is our protection. The first grace is our protection. It says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Friends, our default is to follow our appetites and our passions. Full stop. Full stop. And God's Word acts as a protector so that those passions of the flesh do not wage war against our soul. 20 years of ministry, and I can give you example after example of people who follow after their appetite, and I've lived this in some areas of my own life, and it literally wages war against our souls. It hardens our hearts to the things of God, to the love of our neighbor. And it's ruinous. Here's the second grace that we have, is God's glory. Did you read that? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. One of the great graces we have as we live an honorable life before God is that other people see it, even if they're cursing us while they see it eventually, somehow, it leads to the glory of God. That's what we're here for. We're not here for the glory of you and for me. The greatest grace that we can ever experience is to see the God of the universe exalted and glorified. And when he returns, there's something about 
God's people living in alignment with God's character, the people say, look at the wisdom and the beauty of their God. And they give glory when he returns. Here's a third grace. And this one I know some of y'all are going to love. The silence of, of foolish people, right? The sil- or to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Man, we, we, just, we love this part. Our culture loves this. We love shutting people up, like left and right, right? Here's the problem. How do you do it? By doing good. Not by, like, really great social media posts. Right? Like, that's not going to shut the mouths of fools. We've got it all wrong. The upside-down kingdom of God means, hey, living an honorable life, honoring people, loving other people, honoring the emperor, that is what eventually shuts the mouths of fools. Are we laboring in the wrong places? Here's what it means by subjecting yourself to to the rulers and what have you. I know you read that, and we just live in a day where you're like, but what if the ruler does this? Well, what about Putin? Like, I know that's where our hearts and minds go. And, And let me just say this. When it says submit yourself to every human institution, what it's essentially saying is be good citizens of the world in which you live. Follow the laws. Seek its welfare. Do good, right? But friends, it's not saying just be doormats. That's what Christians are supposed to be, are doormats. The full counsel of God, which means outside of this passage that we're reading in 1 Peter, also gives us demonstrations of, hey, uh, there are times where we practice civil disobedience. And it's essentially uh, when the culture is commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God commands. And so I would just say this, praise God for William Wilberforce and Harriet Tubman who fought against slavery in their own nations because of their Christian faith. I think of Martin Luther King Jr. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? He died trying to assassinate Hitler knowing the scourge that his reign was going to lead to because of his Christian faith. So there are places for this. And so while there are graces for us as we live an integrated life, do you know there's also a cost? There's this reality that no matter how good a life we're going to live, we're still going to face the wrath of the world around us. John 15 says this. Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That could be the nicest person in the world, but because they bear the name of Jesus Christ, the world will hate us. It's just going to happen. And it's because our passport says we're citizens of another nation and nothing more. That's what that means. Paul writes it this way in 2 Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might be persecuted. Will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. Friends, I know there's this thought or feeling that because we face the pressures from our culture, because we're called certain names, that, that we feel like something we believe has to be wrong. When we're called exclusivists or prudes, or old-fashioned, or homophobes, or whatever other term we might be labeled just because we have the name of Jesus Christ. What this passage is telling us is that's actually quite normal. It's not proof that what we believe in is wrong. It's actually proof of what our passport says, that we're citizens of another place. Now, I want to be careful not to embolden the wrong sorts of things. Uh, There's some of us who are like, yeah, I'm being persecuted. This isn't saying we're persecuted because we're jerks, right? If, if we're like 
loud mouths and, and we're just mean to people. What we post is, is just insensitive. That might not be persecution that we're facing from other people. That might be God's fire of sanctification working to purge out of us the opposite of what we see, what he's trying to make his people in the Beatitudes, right? I don't also think it's saying, hey, um, die on every single um, secondary, third-level issue that you can find, right? I would say the things that we're persecuted for should be the things that we can clearly see in Scripture. So I just want to be careful not to embolden the wrong things. In fact, the posture of believers is that of humility. All right, let's keep going. Let's look at verse 10. This is interesting. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, as you read that, what, what are you interpreting? Like, like, what are you feeling? Do you feel like Daniel's like, I'm going to stick it to him. I'm going to go up, windows wide open, I'm going to pray. Ah, I'm going to keep praying, Right? I don't think that's what's happening at all here, actually. You know, look at the end of the verse. What does it say? It says, as he had done previously. There was nothing different about this day than every other day that had preceded it. And that open window thing, I think that's when we usually feel like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to be like bold and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying being bold is, is wrong, but, but I don't think that's at all what's happening in this passage. In fact, 1 Kings 8 gives us a picture of why Daniel is actually opening the window and praying towards Jerusalem. 1 Kings 8, uh, the author here is writing and saying, hey, uh, when you rebel against me and another nation carries you away out of this place, uh, multiple places over the course of this verse, he says, pray towards Jerusalem that my people will repent and come back to the land. And this is what he's saying here in 35. He says, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. And so again, what, what Daniel is basically doing is he is responding in faithfulness and prayer in response to God's faithfulness to him. Chapter 3, it's very similar what's getting ready to happen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were persecuted for uh, refusing to worship something that's other than God. But in this passage, Daniel's being persecuted to ref, uh, for refusing to refrain from proper worship of God. They're saying, you can't pray to your God. And he's like, well, I have to. <laughs> I have to. This is how God calls us to worship him. There's this sense of reliance, right? What's the first thing that Daniel did? Is it what I usually do when I get offended or upset or scared, right? Uh, kind of those shower conversations where I was like, uh, you are this and that, and I'll just kind of talk to myself. Maybe you don't need to know I have those conversations in the shower. Or, or does he go to a whiteboard and just out, outline, this is how we're going to fight this. I'm going to text my friends. And Well, I know. What does he do? He heard it was signed, and he just went and he hit his knees. And he cried out to the Lord in prayer. This is the second time we've seen this. There's consistency. He does it three times a day. There's a posture of humility where he hits his knees. And, and friends, I know we might live in this uh, world where we're like, well, you know, hitting the knees, that's too ceremonial. It's too rote. Three times a day. We need freedom in Christ to pray whenever we want. I, what I see here is Daniel just being consistent, knowing 
that he has to cry out to his God. And that posture of humility, uh, you know, one person said, knees speak. As we hit our knees, it's, it's, it's in a way for me, you know, when I do it, it's a reminder to me that, that that's the same posture that my heart should have and asking the Holy Spirit to give me that posture of humility. I think Daniel sets the stage really well. Again, in 1 Peter, this book to the exiles where he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cared for you. Sometimes I wonder if Peter was reading Daniel as he was writing this book. I just wonder if he's watching this and going, there's Daniel casting his anxieties upon him because he knows his God cares for him. Well, let's look at verses 12 to 18 together. He says this, Then they came near and said before the, uh, before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, This thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded Daniel, was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And the stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. All right. Stuff there. So, so this is really interesting. First of all, there's this deep desire here. Did you see the desire of this king? What did it say? He was much distressed in verse 14. He set his mind to deliver. He labored until the sun went down. Verse 18, after Daniel was thrown in, he, he spent the whole night fasting. It wasn't interrupted. He couldn't sleep. In some ways, it's such a beautiful picture of the impact Daniel's already had on this king's life. But you know what I think it's more a picture of? Complete and utter failure. Complete and utter weakness. Think about it. This is the ruler of this land, and every instinct of his heart was to rescue Daniel, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. That's going to be contrasted here in just a second with, with where salvation after, after, uh, that came from, but, but what a picture. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to those little hotel pools. You ever been to those little hotel pools? We always got one when we traveled as a family when the kids were little, right? Uh, basically, if you jump in it, you'll smell like chlorine for eight days, and uh, right? And so there was one time I was at this hotel, and I'm like, oh, well, I kind of tried to swim. I am terrible at swimming. I sink like a stone. Uh, 110-year-old people are swimming laps around me, laughing at me as I'm sinking. And, and I get into this little pool. I'm like, All right, I'm going to swim some laps. And here's what it looked like. Stroke, wall. Okay, let's turn around. Six foot four in one of those pools just doesn't work out so well. But at one point, I just gave up on my swimming, and I sat on the stairs, and I looked on the wall, and there was a, a life preserver. And I'm thinking, 
a lot of the good that's going to do me. I'm sitting in the pool, and this thing's sitting over there on the wall, right? And, and in a way, uh, that's just a picture of, of Darius to me, right? He, he can't save. And in fact, I think that's a picture of anything in the world in which we live as exiles that we look to to save us. It's unable, completely. But here's who is able. Why does Daniel pray? Why is he living this integrated life? Well, it's essentially because salvation belongs to the living God. Listen to those terms as I read. 19, then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. This is the only time Daniel speaks, by the way. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before them. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had uh, maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwelt in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all of my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And here's what he writes, for he is the living God. Enduring forever, his kingdom shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be, uh, shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, and who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. If you want a prayer to sit and meditate on that last little nugget that talks about this living God is a beautiful place to pray. But here's a couple things real quick, and I need to wrap up. But he talks about God being the living God in verses 20 and 25. He not only believes that this God of Daniel now exists, he believes that he is the God who is active in his creation. Friends, faith as exiles means we are trusting that God is living and active even when we don't see the results for ourselves, even when our circumstances don't change. But the second thing we see is he is an able God. Verse 22, it says, Daniel wasn't even touched by the tooth of a lion. It's very similar to chapter 3, right? Uh, Where uh, there wasn't even a smell of smoke on God's people. But then in 24, you see the hideous end of the servants of um, the, 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 the Medes and the Persians, right? When they threw them in the pit, they didn't even hit the bottom before the lions got to them. Just like the people who threw the folks in the lions then, they didn't even make it to the threshold without being consumed. And it's basically saying God is able to save. Full stop. Full stop. Friends, you know what I think Daniel's really doing here? I don't think he's just giving us this picture of how to live a good, integrated life. I think he's actually pointing us not just to the living God as he understood it, but to the living God as we can understand it today on this side of the cross. I wonder if Daniel realizes in his situation how close his situation mirrors Jesus's. Think about it. He was framed by jealous religious leaders. Jesus was arrested while at prayer in a private location in Gethsemane. Pilate, like Darius, worked hard for his release and failed. A stone was rolled over that which 
and signified death conquering him, right? There was a seal. There was probably guards. Friends, the reality isn't that God will immediately deliver us from this lion's den, whatever this lion's den might be in your life. Rather, it's pointing us forward to the one who showed once the stone was rolled over the tomb that, that he could beat that death as well, right? It was too, Daniel, Daniel was tuning our ears to be prepared to hear this story of the Savior who, who not only faced death, but he beat it in the resurrection. That's what we're moving towards as we head towards Easter. There's this beautiful picture in Romans 8 where it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. In many ways, our suffering identifies us with Christ in a more deep way, and it points us to this reality that if we suffer with Him in His trials and in His suffering and persecution... We will also live with him in glory as he defeats death. And the, defa- and the death that we are going to defeat isn't here on earth. We will all face that. But it's that ultimate death. We will not face that ultimate lion of judgment and Satan and God's judgment and Satan. Here, let me clean up the Satan part here in just a second. But here's, here's how this story ends with this woman uh, that I heard on the news. They, she was kind of smiling by the end of the interview, and I was confused, Right? And he said, why are you smiling? Why is there hope? And she said, because I know I'm going to see my land again. I know I'm going to see it. And part of me was really grateful she has that hope. I scratched my head and go, I I just really hope you're right. But you know, that hope reminded me of this picture of the New Testament church where Peter says, you're going to face a lion yourself. And then we see in this one paragraph I'm going to read and we'll conclude with this, what it says about that deliverance. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And listen to this. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his internal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And it's not to a land that maybe we hope will be there when we get there. It's the one in 1 Peter 1. It says, it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. That's our hope. That's our protected land as we continue to walk this road as exiles. New circumstances will not give us the life we crave. But the Christian exile lives by faith in the living God, who is able to save through Christ, who will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us for all of eternity. Let me close this in prayer as we move to the table. Lord, there are many who need this hope. All of us need this hope today. Father, for those who are facing the fires of persecution, I pray that you would use this to encourage our hearts. Lord, for the one who feels like an exile but but has not yet turned to you in faith and not quite sure what land you have prepared us for, I pray that you would grip their hearts with the beauty of the gospel. And so, Lord, be with us as we move to communion this afternoon. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.